Traditional Cardiovascular Disease in Women, What Every Doctor Should Know, Ask, and Look For. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Thomas Dayspring. He's one of the most requested speakers in the United States with expertise on atherothrombosis, lipoprotein, and vascular biology. Dr. Dayspring has given over 2,500 lectures. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dayspring. Well, it's a great pleasure to be uh, chatting with you and your audience. Let's talk a little bit about the metabolic syndrome and and type 2 diabetes in women. Are you treating those conditions differently as compared to a man? The treatment would uh, be the same. It'd be lifestyle and various pharmacologic agents that would get us the goal. But we do know for, again, a multitude of reasons, some of which are understood, some are not, that insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, and certainly the development of type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular outcomes, mortality, morbidity are significantly worse in women than men over even the short term. So though all clinicians ought to look and diagnose the metabolic syndrome all the time, and we must respect it in both genders, you really got to get a shiver up your spine when you see you're dealing with an insulin-resistant woman. Part of this insulin resistance in women, and remember, insulin resistance is sort of the older you get, the more likely you're going to be insulin-resistant, is at menopause, when a woman loses estrogen, insulin resistance significantly worsens. Estrogen's one of its beneficial effects is it's positive on insulin sensitivity, on glycemic control. And when a woman loses her estrogen at menopause or prematurely, say, with ophorectomy, insulin resistance uh, takes right off on her. So, And perhaps this is one of the reasons why the metabolic syndrome's uh, prevalence and statistics are a little uh, worse in women and everything. And typically, when insulin resistance develops, physicians know they develop diatherogenic dyslipidemia, manifested by high triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol. But if we are checking atherogenic lipoproteins, they'd have way too many of the ApoB, VLDL, and LDL particles. And typically, the LDLs are the small, which are very prone to oxidation once they enter the artery wall. Uh, hypertension follows closely in these patients, as do glycemic abnormalities. So you and I really must make a very strong effort to look carefully for the parameters of metabolic syndrome. A waist size over 35 in a Caucasian, over 31 in Asians, a triglyceride greater than 150, an HDL cholesterol under 50 for a woman, 130, 85 blood pressure, or impaired glucose above 100. And if you look for all of them, it's going to be shocking how much is out there. I won't belabor it, but the diabetic debt is even worse. A woman who has diabetes is at significantly higher risk for an event than a man with type 2 diabetes. And a woman with diabetes who hasn't even had an event is at higher risk than a non-diabetic who's already sustained their first myocardial infarction. We must treat women with uh, these parameters very aggressively. Dr. Dayspring, are you using any advanced lipid testing in your office? And if so, which which one do you like the most? I do, but remember, I run a lipid clinic primarily dedicated to women. So my referrals are usually terribly high-risk folks who, for one reason or another, their providers want an expert to look at this. However, It's the ApoB particles, your VLDLs, IDLs, and especially your LDLs that carry the cholesterol into the artery wall. 
And there is no doubt that particle number is the number one risk factor driving them into your artery wall. So I believe those of us who uh, want to be at the cutting edge of this have to measure apolipoprotein B levels available in every laboratory in the United States, although coverage is far less than ideal. Or the only other way you can quantitate lipoproteins is using a technology called nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy offered by a company called Liposcience in Raleigh, North Carolina. They'll tell you how many LDL and VLDL particles are in your plasma. Both of those correlate better with heart disease than any other lipid parameter, and both of those have studies that if we lower them therapeutically, we significantly reduce risk. Advanced testing that doesn't quantitate lipoproteins, I don't know that that helps us out at all. In my practice, it's either an ApoB study or the NMR study on most women. For the average practitioner who might not want to go there because of perhaps some iffy coverage or maybe they don't understand what they should be looking for, NSEP recommends the best surrogate of the atherogenic lipoproteins available in the lipid profile is non-HDL cholesterol. If you simply subtract HDL cholesterol from total cholesterol, you've identified the cholesterol that is in your ApoB, atherogenic particles. Even if LDL cholesterol is at goal, if non-HDL cholesterol is high, there is residual risk. By the way, the AHA Women's Guidelines strive that all women should have a non-HDL cholesterol under 130. And I think if listeners to your programs pull lipid profiles on women, they're going to say, my God, I don't have any women with non-HDL cholesterol under 130. That's an exaggeration, but I think you get the point. Well, it sounds to me that you are, you're definitely a particle number man, but there are lipidologists out there who still kind of are holding on to particle size. What do you say to these guys? I would say to them they better get their nose into the literature. Over the last two years, there's been several gigantic epidemiologic trials, MESA, the big uh, epic Norfolk trial in Europe, that have shown LDL size is not a risk factor whatsoever if you look at LDL particle counts or ApoB. The previous data that suggested to us that small LDLs snuck into the artery wall, easy and big, is wrong. Those studies never measured LDL particle counts. They just looked at size. And if you're not counting particles, size becomes a big risk factor because uh, in an insulin-resistant world that we live in, more people will have small LDLs than big or normal size LDLs. However, once you count LDL particles, LDL size has no statistical significantly relationship to atherosclerosis. If you've got too many big LDL particles, you're in big trouble. If you have too many small LDL particles, you're in big trouble. And the real disconnect, people who have too many big LDL particles have very high LDL cholesterol. You'll never miss them. However, people who have too many small LDL particles, which are your insulin-resistant folks, may have an absolutely normal LDL cholesterol level, but their particle count is still high. A quick review of the recent literature will dismiss LDL size as a risk factor. I'd like to move on to other ways you evaluate risk in your female patients. Do you use CRP? Do you use the plaque test? And how do you use it? And does, does it offer any sort of, you know, recalculation of what category they belong to? Sure. Again, in my practice, a very high-risk practice, do they really provide any information? If I already know because you've had an event or anything that you're at terrible risk, would this add anything more? That's debatable. For the average practitioner, I think the data is pretty solid that if you look at inflammatory markers, and the two generally available in the real world are the high-sensitivity C-reactive protein and the new atheroma-specific inflammatory marker called lipoprotein phospholipase A2 
I believe, sold commercially as the plaque test. They can add uh, risk information beyond the standard lipid panel. Ritger in the Women's Health Study has published extensively on C-reactive protein in women showing if we stratify healthy women in quartiles, those in quartile 4 with C-reactive proteins above 3.0 have a six-fold risk compared to a woman with a normal C-reactive protein, regardless of what her LDL cholesterol is. The American Heart Association and some guidelines published several years ago suggest we use CRP in people who are in the gray zone. Geez, are they moderate or high risk or are they not? You know, their lipids are abnormal, but maybe not enough to scare you. If you have an elevated inflammatory marker on top of subtle lipid abnormalities, that probably is a higher risk person than you realize yourself. I believe C-reactive protein is also an excellent marker of insulin resistance and the potential to develop type 2 diabetes. Indeed, C-reactive protein is correlated with total mortality down the road a little bit. It's a very cheap test, pretty readily available. I, I think it can help us with our risk assessment. We're probably not at the stage where it's a goal of therapy. There are studies underway prospectively to show should you be following high inflammatory markers. Some clinicians do, but that's not level one evidence right now. Dr. Dayspring, where does imaging fit into your practice to try and kind of refine risk? Are you doing any IMT work? Are you looking at CT angiograms or are you just a blood man? No, I, I think these are all wonderful tests. Again, of course, some of them can be expensive and you have to factor it in. Can a patient get coverage for these things or not? If not, you have to let her know what the cost is and whether she wants to do it. But I, I believe the more information we have about your vascular system, the more I can fine-tune your risk and decide where, how aggressive I have to be with your therapies and everything. The test most that are probably the easiest to do would be the carotid intimal thickening, and the data is substantial on that, that it's a wonderful test to diagnose subclinical heart disease and elevate risk. I, I caution you, be careful who you have doing those. This has to be done with the appropriate machinery and with technicians who know what they're doing. Uh, that you know, We're looking at hundreds of a millimeter thickening of the carotid there, so you, you, know, you want to believe the studies. Coronary calcium scoring is readily available, readily standardized, not well covered. It's certainly more expensive than carotid testing, and that's emerging data, too, that you can follow it over time, perhaps to excess therapy. I especially like to use that if you you look at somebody and you've looked at their standard lipid or lipoprotein inflammatory risk factors and you realize you have a terribly high-risk person and you now say, you know what, you need three drugs to control your risk. And they say, oh, no, I'm not taking three drugs. If you can do these tests and light up their arteries or light up their carotid, it really makes them more amenable to, to say, wow, I do have a problem here or so. Dr. Thomas Dayspring, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's my great pleasure, and I, I hope I've provided some interesting food for thought. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and for comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com, and thank you for listening. 